church of Jesus Christ has accomplished amazing things in this world. Uh, we have started hospitals. We have done literacy programs. Uh, we have uh, fought disease. The Church of Jesus Christ has done amazing things. I think about William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, because he was a Christian, went to the British Parliament and fought against slavery for his whole career. The slave trade was abolished through William Wilberforce's influence. Martin Luther King Jr. went to battle for civil rights with his Bible. Uh, in your sphere of influence, you should do everything you can to make life better for the people around you. This is the second commandment. We love our neighbors ourselves, so do everything you can to help the people around you have, have a better life. Go vote as an expression of your love for your neighbor. Your, your vote is how you love your neighbor to, to help make life better. But be realistic about it at the same time. We're not going to build a Christian utopia on earth. I just mentioned voting. This is the promise of every candidate, isn't it? If we just vote for the right person, put the right people in Congress, the right people on the Senate or on the Supreme Court, and everything's going to be good. We're going to fix the world. But the world in rebellion against God is headed in a trajectory of doom. And here's the climax of this rebellion. It's the coming of the man of lawlessness, and it's already at work. We're not going to build a Christian utopia. We do what we can, but things are getting worse. They're going to get worse. Now here's a second reason why Paul taught the Thessalonians about the day of the Lord. So believers encourage one another about the life to come. So believers encourage one another about the life to come. And for this, I want you to turn back just a page or two to 1 Thessalonians 5. It's actually just one page. We're in 2 Thessalonians 2. Flip back one page to 1 Thessalonians 5, and I want to read a little bit here. We're going to land in verse 11, but I'm going to start reading in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, some scholars are confused or troubled by the apparent contradiction between 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Because 1 Thessalonians 5 teaches the day of the Lord is going to come unexpectedly like a thief in the night, like labor. It's uh, just, you're not going to be able to plan for this. But 2 Thessalonians 2 says, oh, don't worry about the, sun, the, day, the, of the day of the Lord. There's two signs, at least, of his coming. The man of lawlessness and the, 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 uh, a great apostasy. So, uh, there's signs in 2 Thessalonians 2, but it comes suddenly in 1 Thessalonians 5. Well, which is it? Well, uh, my answer to the question, uh, you can answer that question two ways. On the one hand, I think that the rapture that he describes in 1 Thessalonians 4 is surprising. Um, but his return to earth will be preceded by the signs in 2 Thessalonians 2. So there's that answer. If you don't like that answer... I'll give you a better one. Well, not a better one. That's the best one. A different one. Um, verses 4 and following talks about the fact that we're followers of Jesus. We're not surprised. Um, people in darkness might be surprised by it, but we're not going to be. Let's look. But you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, we, so then let us 
Not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. What I'm intrigued by, verse 11, encourage one another. How? Why? With what? I think with what he's just said. We encourage one another with the fact that uh, we are going to live together with him forever. That's our hope. And we encourage one another with that. Now, I suspect, I suspect because I think it's true in my own life, that First Thessalonians here is bringing to our attention a part of Christian fellowship that's sometimes missing. When's the last time that your growth group or your accountability group talked with one another about the promise of eternal life together with Jesus? When's the last time that this came up in your conversation, that when you were talking to a discouraged friend? Don't count those on their deathbed. That's what we talk about with people on their deathbed. right? But, but I mean, someone who's lonely because... They really want to be married. Or someone who's discouraged and hurting because they actually are married. Or, or someone who's, who's tr- just trapped by a life that is, that is so packed that they have no breathing room. And they're coming to you, they're complaining, they're discouraged. And Do you ever talk about the life to come with them under those circumstances? I think that's Paul's expectation, that this would be a normal part of our Christian conversations, that we, would, that we would talk about our life together with Jesus forever, not just during prophecy conferences and we're trying to fill out charts, but, but a normal part of church life, that this is what we talk about a lot, all the time. I wonder, I wonder if one of the reasons that we don't talk about the life to come is because we spend so much of our time focusing on how to make the life that is more comfortable. That um, the result of that is, is less happiness, more miserableness. I want to explain to this. I, I'm, I know I succumb to this temptation. Um, we want people to turn to Jesus. We want, if, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, we want you to believe the same thing about Jesus that we do. We want you to agree with us that he's the Savior. Sometimes that we think that the best way to show you how great Jesus is is by talking about how Jesus can make your life better. So we're going to, to convince you of the supremacy of Jesus by saying, come to Jesus because he can fix your marriage. He can help you love your job. He can manage your finances. He can make you a better parent. Or he can finally give you some peace. He can finally help you get along with your mother-in-law. Jesus Jesus can make your life better. I believe that. I think the Bible says a lot about those topics. But we spend a lot of time, doesn't it It seems like it, that we spend a lot of time talking about how to get your best life now and not talking about our hope for the life that is to come. I want to serve you this morning. You might not find this encouraging. I want to serve you by telling you that it is very possible for you to faithfully follow Jesus and seek to honor him with your whole life and still go to your grave with real hurtful, unresolved, and unsettled issues in your marriage. That it's possible for you to seek to honor God, follow every rule in the book of Proverbs about money, and still have a broken bank account when you die and spend the last 10 years of your life in the poorhouse. 
You can follow all of Paul's admonitions for uh, how to work, how to have your job, and, and you should, and it will make your job better, but you might retire still and really just not like what you do. And if any of those things happen to you, and I think at least one of them will, it's okay. It's okay because if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not all the life that you know. In fact, the promise of the Bible is we'll be with him forever. This is just prelude. Have you ever been to a theater to see a musical? Ever seen a musical in a theater? So you walk in, you sit down, and, and the, the curtain is still down, and the stage is dark, but about, well, maybe right at the hour when the, the musical is supposed to start, the orchestra will start playing a song, and it's called the overture. And in the overture of, an, of a musical, they will pl- they play the song, and it lasts so seven to ten minutes, and it's usually a medley of other tunes that you're going to hear. If you're familiar with the musical, if it's one you've seen a hundred times, Annie, My Fair Lady, uh, uh, Les Mis, maybe, or something you've seen a, a thousand times, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, um, and you listen to the overture, you can hear tunes that you're going to see performed in a little bit when the musical actually starts. You can hear those songs. You hear a little snippet of If I Were a Rich Man or Matchmaker, Matchmaker or, or something like that. You can hear a little snippet of the tunes. You can't see anything. The curtain is down. The stage is dark. There's no actors, but you can't actually, the orchestra's in a pit. You can't even see them. All you can do is hear the music that, that they're, they're playing. Uh, that's the way life is for us, brothers and sisters, here and now. This is overture. We hear passages of heavenly themes. We hear snippets of the songs of eternity, but the curtain has yet to rise, and the main actors have not yet taken the stage. We have yet to see the star of the show. We see through a glass darkly, but we hear the music. We hear the music. If you think Christianity is about making your best life now, or if this is the only opportunity that you have for happiness, you are always going to be disappointed. You'll be tempted to think that God has cheated you. Marriage, one man, one woman for life. We believe that. What do you do if you find out in seven years, you'll find out in seven minutes, your spouse is a little bit of a disappointment? And what if that disappointment is long and painful and it lasts for 30 years? Has God cheated you? See, holding back, and did, did, did somehow there's a mistake because in this life you're supposed to have marriage utopia? You, you are not going to have the, 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 a perfect life. You're not going to have the family that you, uh, that you think is, is, is perfect. You're not going to have an awesome face. You're not going to have all the money that you think you might need or the education or the body or the job that you really, 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 really want to be happy. If that happens, has God cheated you? But if this is just overture, you can face realistically a world that where things are just not going to be perfect. You can be content. There's a sense in the Bible in which we're called to, here we go, contented dissatisfaction. I'm content with the world that, that, that I have. I'm satisfied with it, and yet I really want something better. And that's coming. It's the life that is to come. 
I wonder if this sense of discontentment is actually driving Paul. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians 7. I find it confusing. But look at what it says. It says, what I mean, 1 Corinthians 7, 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live, live as if they do not. Um, those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Don't be so engrossed in this world so that if anything is not perfect, it threatens you. It's never going to be perfect. Don't, don't turn following Jesus into an HGTV show. You know what happens at the end of every HGTV show? The house is perfect. The camera pans through the house. It's been completely remodeled and it just looks beautiful. It's absolutely perfect. You know why it's perfect? Because no one lives there yet. And pretty soon, someone's going to go in that house and they're going to take crayon all over the walls. Or they're going to move a piece of furniture and there's going to be a ding and a nick or a run in the carpet or a scrape across those beautiful Brazilian hardwoods. Right? That's what happens in real homes where real people live. Can, can you encourage a brother or sister when they come to you and they say that they're really discouraged? Can you, can you serve them? by helping them turn their disappointment with the life they have into hope for the life that is to come with Jesus. It's okay if you die and you haven't reached perfect work fulfillment. This is not the only opportunity you're going to have to work. Work's coming. It's going to be great. It's okay if this one's just eh. Well... Here's a final reason Paul spoke like he did about the day of the Lord. Let's finish here. Um, he, he spoke about this to bolster their confidence in the Lord Jesus. To bolster their confidence in the Lord Jesus. There's two things I want to talk about in First, uh, Second Thessalonians 2. We're going to go back there. Uh, we want to focus on verse 8. It's the clearest to see. But I want to go back for just a minute to verse 6. In verses 6 and 7, Paul talks about a restrainer. Something or someone that is keeping the man of lawlessness at bay. He's ready in the, this generation. He's already at work in, in Second Thessalonians. Um, but uh, this restrainer is at work. The man of lawlessness is at work. What is this restrainer that he's talking about? I don't know. I don't know. He doesn't name the restrainer. And, and he says, grammatically here, this is interesting. In, in verse 6, he calls the restrainer a thing, a what, an it. And in verse 7, he calls the restrainer a he, a person. So what could be both an it and a he? What could it be that the Thessalonians knew about then who is still at work today? <sighs> I don't know. Uh, here's some suggestions. Here's the two best suggestions. Um, the first one is that Paul's talking about the Roman Empire here. A thing, and it, the empire, epitomized in the emperor, he, a he. It's possible. The Roman emperor, empire was in place, and it was keeping any other world figure from coming to preeminence, so that works. Um, it, it makes sense that Paul would talk so cryptically about the Roman Empire. It wasn't great, it wasn't wise necessarily to talk about the demise of the Roman Empire and letters that you were sending around during the Roman Empire. It just wasn't wise. So that would make sense. The problem is, with that view, is uh, who's restraining the man of lawlessness now? Because the Roman Empire hasn't been around for a long time. So who's doing that work now? 
Uh, maybe, here's, here's my view. I think he's talking here about the Holy Spirit or God himself. John MacArthur says that all the other suggestions about who the restrainer is are human. They're human institutions, human beings. But the man of lawlessness is, is, is promoted by Satan himself. How do human beings have the power to hold Satan's hand? Well, we don't. And the Holy Spirit would make sense if Paul moves from talking about the Holy Spirit is an it to a he. John does the same thing. It actually works in Greek grammar. I don't know then if the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. What I don't know is why Paul didn't just say that. These are believers. You could talk about the Holy Spirit quite clearly and plain. I don't know why he didn't. And some people find it hard to understand how could the Holy Spirit be taken out of the way? Well, I think that would be a reference to the rapture of the church, but I, it's, it's cryptic. Regardless here, what is clear in this passage is that the man of lawlessness is not all-powerful. He is restrained. He's at God's command. He's, he will be revealed at the proper time, but, for, but, for, uh, but not a moment beforehand. He is a dog on God's leash. Verse 8 is even more explicit about this supremacy of Jesus. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. This is probably a reference to Isaiah 11.4. I wrote it down. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Revelation 19, Jesus comes, he's got a sword in his mouth with which he slays his enemies. I think the emphasis here is on Jesus' absolute power. Here is the epitome of all human rebellion against God. The man of lawlessness, one person who leads us all and says to God, I will take your place. And Jesus comes back and says, and he's gone. Like a leaf, dandelion floating in the air. He'll do this at the splendor of his coming, text says. Think with me about this for a minute. When Jesus returns... And the powers of humanity are arrayed against him. He goes, and it's over. When he came the first time, and the enemy arrayed against us was sin and death, the wrath of God, Jesus did not blow it away. How did Jesus, our champion, defend us from God's wrath? It took his own death on the cross. Which is the greatest threat to you? Is the greatest threat to you the man of lawlessness who's going to come and demand to be worshipped uh, and, and raise his hand against God? Is, is that the one you are to fear? Or is the greatest threat to you God's wrath against you because of your sin? One Jesus conquers by going... One Jesus conquers at the cost of his own life. This is why we plead. This is why the Bible pleads with those who are not followers of Jesus, to turn to him and trust in him. You have an enemy incited by your own sin and rebellion against God. You cannot conquer yourself. To, to, so this answer is to turn to him and to, to trust in Jesus for forgiveness and life, that he's the one who paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. I talk a lot, I know this, I'll stop. I have topics that come up occasionally. Niagara Falls, fireworks, and walking my dog, Stella. And I talk about those things regularly. Near our house, there's a little dog. It's a little dog that lives near our house. It's a little yappy, hairy dog. I think it's a shih tzu. I'm not sure. It looks like a mop on a leash. 
little dog. Stella and I are, are out walking, and when, when we walk by, this dog, sees, if the dog sees it, it goes apoplectic with rage. It barks, it snarls, it pulls at the leash. Poor owners, these poor owners of this dog, they're out walking too in the morning, it's dark. It's funny, we, the human beings, we see each other farther away than the dogs, and, and the whole time we're like, oh, I hope we can make it by each other without yappy, yapster seeing us. And, and, and um, uh, we walk along, and, and that little dog will see us and start raging at us. I'm not afraid of that dog. I look at the dog, and I think to myself, dog, you weigh like 12 pounds, and 8 pounds of it are hair, okay? All right? My foot is bigger than your mouth. If you get too close, you'll find that out, all right? I'm not afraid of you. I have a 75-pound dog at my side. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of you because you're on a leash and your owner is holding you. I'm not afraid of you because if you don't stop your little yapping, I've seen it, your owner will pick you up and carry you home. Man of lawlessness, he's a barky dog. He's, actually, he has, he has a little bit of a bite to him too. But he's just on God's leash. And when it pleases him, the man of lawlessness will be carried away off the street, never to bark again. It's our hope and our expectation. Because the Lord Jesus is coming back. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence this morning and we pray that you would take these words that I have spoken and use them for their intended purpose as I have been attempting to explain your word, that you would within us cultivate hope in the life that is to come, that you would temper our expectations about the life that is, that you would fill us with realism and balance about the life that is, and that you would fill us with hope in the life that is to come. Oh, Lord, fill us with longing so that we would say with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.